Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Suchi Talati, a geoengineering governance fellow with the Union of Concerned Scientists, where I ask her what exactly is geoengineering anyway, and how can it save the world? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Vaness. We had the most exciting guest this week, and we met the most incredibly exciting way. If you picture it, it was Washington, D.C. I think I was wearing a leotard and a high-waisted skirt. And it was a super cute skirt. It was a really cute skirt, and I was minding my own business walking by the Capitol building when I look up and I see Dr. Suchi Talati. And you're standing there, and I'm on these steps, and I think I was doing a photo shoot, and you just so happened to walk like, right next to us at the right place at the right and time. And I was totally staring. <laughs> uh, but, like, it was really just an incredible moment because, like, I think, like, Mother Nature or, like, someone told me, like, you need to talk to them because, like, that person has a story. And next thing I knew, we were talking, and I really, my intuition couldn't have been firing on any more of all cylinders. So, basically, tell people, like, what your title is because it's not what I keep saying it is. Um, <laughs> but you have, like, a really incredible title. So I'm the Geoengineering Governance Fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Let's say it one more time. The The Geoengineering Governance Fellow at the Union of Concerned Scientists. So geoengineering is such like a $75 word. It is it is a strange topic, but one that we definitely need to talk about. It's not strange. So an engineer is So an engineer is basically it's it's like a scientist, but it's more about applying the science to the real world. And a geo, a geologist. So a geologist studies the Earth, and so geoengineering um, is kind of a misnomer. It's it's a set of approaches that are large scale interventions in the Earth's climate system. So let's take it way back. Yeah, you're minding your own business. You're just like growing up. You're like, all right. The world's cool. I'm in school. Like, when did you realize that you wanted to be a scientist? I'm pretty young. Uh, my parents are both scientists, and I think that was just the path that I was going to take. <laughs> what kind of scientist or what kind of science do your parents do? Uh, my mom's a doctor, and my dad's a mathematician. Ah, wow. Yes, they're they're impressive folks. I really can't imagine, to be honest. It's I, I math. Is really it, it? It escapes me. I signed up for astronomy and thought that it was going to be about like Aries and Pisces and stuff. Like I didn't realize it was going to be so mathy. So I'm really into like scientists, mathematician people's brains because it's just not how mine works. So I respect you so much because you're just you're working on a wavelength that I've I don't think I've ever visited it before. <laughs> so you realized that you wanted to be a scientist, and what about like engineering? And then further, like was it a natural progression for you becoming a geoengineer, or like did you realize that there was kind of a a blank space there in the science community, and you were like, let me like I'm, I'm in, was it a passion thing? Was it like a, like how? Yeah, so um, I started as an environmental engineer in college, and. Um, I actually interned on the Hill while I was in college because I was like, I'm really interested in politics, too. How do I do this? And when I was there, I started learning more about climate policy, and I totally fell in love with it. So I decided I wanted to learn more about climate science. So I went and got my master's in climate science, and that's where I started learning about geoengineering. And I thought this was just this really fascinating topic that's really controversial, but something that we might really need to talk about. And it seemed like this kind of space that needed more voices. And so... um, 
I got my PhD um, in engineering and public policy, and that was mostly all about climate policy, too. And, you know, it was during the Obama administration. So we had, you know, we were working on the clean power plan. We were working on, you know, building out energy systems. It was such an exciting time. Um, but, you know, after after the 2016 election, you know, climate policy has taken kind of a backseat um, in our national conversation and, you know, in terms of what's happening in the administration. And so I thought, you know, I wanted to come back to geoengineering because it's this topic that, you know, it can be very controversial, but there are so many interesting parts of it um, that are starting to come up in really big reports, like the IPCC report that came out last year. Was that the one that came out on my birthday about the 11-year thing? Yes. Yeah, so that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, and so they came out with a special report last year about what we would need to stay under uh, 1.5 degrees of temperature rise. And so within that— um, they Now, ta- why is 1.5 degree of temperature rise important? So that's basically a threshold we found that abo- above— which we're going to start seeing a lot more catastrophic changes, two degrees, even more catastrophic changes. And so 1.5 degrees is something that the community has come together to decide that this is something that we should stay under. And when you say that uh, geoengineering is or can be controversial, there's contra- controversial topics within it, like what does that mean? Yeah. So let me take a step back and explain kind of yeah. more in depth what it is. Um, so I had said earlier, it's, it's intentional large-scale interventions in the climate system. So there's two different Ooh, that's sides That's what geoengineering is. That's what geoengineering is. Wow. <laughs> so there's two different kinds. So the first the first is a set of methods that's focused on sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So that's called carbon removal. And then there's another side of it called solar geoengineering. And those are approaches that reflect sunlight to cool the planet. Solar? Solar geoengineering. Okay, okay, okay. So carbon removal, uh, there's there's kind of a spectrum of approaches in there. There's There's like nature-based solutions that are like planting more trees, right? Or there's something called blue carbon, which is about coastal wetlands and how they absorb carbon dioxide. So um, coastal wetlands absorb better than just like... like Just like normal land. Yeah. Yeah. They absorb it at a much faster rate, and they actually can store it for many, many, many years. And so actually when we degrade wetlands, which is bad for so many reasons, another reason is that it actually becomes a source of carbon. And so if we restore wetlands and protect them, they can actually become a carbon sink and help store carbon dioxide. Oh. So it's kind of like – it's like another reason like why like losing wetlands is like – Obviously, very much. Yeah. So it's bad for so many reasons, but that's just and that's just one of them. Okay, so I have like a wider question that I don't really know if we like really talked about or if you're. I just am curious. And so basically, you were saying that you came up in the Obama administration, like when you were going to school. Mm -hmm. So does that? I'm guessing that we were probably born in like the same age box. Like I was born in '87. Me too. Ah, fierce. Yes. So my question for you is: is like. Are there, what's the generational difference that you notice? Like, I mean, I don't want you to like talk shit about anyone in your coworking, but <laughs> it's like, what is the generational difference in, within the science community? Do you, I, I mean, it seems like all of the voices are pretty united on, you know, the temperature changes and like how long we have to achieve it. But I just was thinking as you were talking, like, I wonder what scientists who have been doing this, like, since, like, you know, our parents, but in the climate change space have, noticed how differences in fundings and like government approach in America has like stymied or stagnated mm-hmm. our 
ability to like study it, to approach it better, to have moved faster and better on it. Because I always think about like with like HIV treatment, if the Reagan administration hadn't been spending like seven years not talking about it and, you know, downplaying the uh, seriousness of it, how much further we would we have gotten? Because when we did start to focus on it, like we got so far so quick. Totally. And I think that this is one of those things where, you know, because we don't see necessarily like the you know, with HIV AIDS in the 80s, like we were seeing like tens of thousands of people, you know, having their lives like really severely impacted. I think with climate change, like if you don't see it in front of your face, there's just that ability for people to say like, I don't understand how this affects me. And I think that if scientists could be like, well, you know, I was just wondering like if in the 80s, there wasn't very much research on it. Like, well, this and this like sort of thing started to happen in the 80s. And if we would have like thought about it more, I don't know. Do you, do you guys ever talk about that? Yeah, no, I think it's a really big conversation on how the conversation has evolved and, you know, how, you know, this new generation is starting to, you know, raise their voices and, and so much louder than we have before. Um, there were scientists in the 80s who were trying to bring this to people's attention. You know, I think the first scientists testified to Congress in the mid-80s about climate change. And, you know, in the first Bush administration, you know, we, that's when we actually signed, you know, the Rio summit that, that started these, like, annual UN climate meetings in 1992 in Brazil. But then, oh. you know, and in the Clinton administration, you know, climate and environmental policy was really important, but it wasn't something we were seeing, like you said. So there wasn't this, like, rise to act. But like that said, Al Gore, as vice president, it's something that he cared about, too. So he was trying to bring it up. And that's when, I don't know if you remember, the Kyoto Protocol happened as one of these UN meetings that, that the United States Senate didn't ratify. Oh. And so... And then, you know, we have the second Bush administration. And it's so crazy because if you look back at the presidential debates in 2000, they were actually debating climate policies in those debates. So we had Republicans on board. And then you go to you look at that administration after Bush won. And all of a sudden, we've like hit peak climate denialism. And I honestly cannot tell you what happened, but we went from debating climate solutions to completely denying its existence. And I think that was when it's, we started like on this roller coaster of just like ups and downs of like denialism and like new ways of denying Is the that science. a fossil fuel industry thing? Do Definitely. You- I think there's been a lot of fossil fuel company influence in the messaging and in paying uh, candidates, uh, you know, and so a lot of Republican candidates will either, you know, lobby for specific policies or shut policies down that are around climate. And so we had a really big cap-and-trade bill come up in 2008 um, that, you know, got completely squashed um, because of all these factors at play. Um, And then, you know, when the Obama administration came in, you know, we had, you know— a climate person in in the office, but it was we still had such controversy around even believing the science that you know there wasn't a lot of action we could take in the administration because we didn't have you know the full Senate in the House to you know make these moves, and so you know only until only like near the end of his administration, the last few years, did he come out with like the clean power plan and you know different climate things that he could only do in the executive branch. But you know for you know massive structural change, you need Congress to act too, and so and now. Now we're just here. In I mean, because the EPA has just had like been run by like completely bad people. Right. Then they are stripping regulations. They're, you know, the dismantling water, the science clean, boards. I mean, the Clean Water Act, like you've talked about on your podcast before. But so, so the science community is aware that like painfully aware, I'm sure that like you have experienced it in your career that like this current administration is like really actively engaging in climate denialism and like trying to 
rollback regulations and kind of so <clears throat> when you were talking about that a little bit I was thinking like what do you say to climate change deniers because like I was thinking about like Prince Charles because I was watching The Crown and like he was like talking about this like in the late 70s early 80s and people thought he was like way out of like left field but like it's so interesting so I mean at this point since the early since 1980 that's been like 39 years, almost 40 years that mean that isn't talked about in mainstream, even if it was considered like fringe when they were talking about it, like in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So it's like that, I think in that time, like I remember in 1993 growing up on like the Mississippi River, we had like this huge, like massive flood. And then like <clears throat> Houston's had like its like second, like gigantic yeah. flood. So do you think that some of these climate things that we are seeing in these weather patterns like could really be the effect of climate change? And do you think that that's like a, like, what would you say to a climate denier? Like, do you have to deal with them on like a, did you ever have to deal? So I do have to deal, luckily not super often, but it's really hard and it's hard not to be combative, right? And so the approach that I take is usually just to ask, why do you believe that? Because I want to understand where they're coming from. Because usually, you know, we, we've come from this history of really trusting science. You know, we trust science to provide our water, to provide our food, to provide our iPhones. So what is it about this particular topic that is making you say that? And that's usually how I start the conversation. Because it would require people to have to, like, change and, to like, be eat less. Yeah. And be like, why, why do, do I, I believe this? Do I have to eat less this? meat? Do I have yeah. to drive the car less? <laughs> like, if it requires an inconvenience, it's like, ill. Yeah, and, 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 and I think the thing about this is that it's not just about personal sacrifice, right? It's about you know, voting and getting massive structural change, right? Changing out, like, a plastic straw for a paper straw isn't really going to make that much of an impact compared to a public policy that is sweeping. So, and I think that's the message that I'm trying to send the most. But in terms of your question about, like, relating climate events or weather events to climate, we can definitely do that. So, you know, we can't necessarily attribute, like, a single event to climate change, but the signs around attributing that is rapidly advancing. And we can see how much climate has affected the likelihood and intensity of a certain event, which is so fascinating. And so, like, for example, for Houston and Hurricane Harvey, um, climate change made um, the rainfall three times more likely to be that intense and 15, uh, 15% like that strong. And so, I mean, and we can like say that with the science. Compared to like a hurricane in the 70s. Right. Ah. Uh. Interest. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's some, there's been a few studies that have found that some recent heat waves have been so extreme that we they wouldn't have existed without climate change. That's really scary. We're going to take a really quick break. We're going to be right back with more Dr. Suchi Talati after this. Okay. So... Basically, we were just talking about, like, if the the comparisons that we can draw to, like, the intensity and frequency of weather events over the last, like, 30, 30 years to climate change. And you were talking about Hurricane Harvey, which I think is <clears throat> very interesting. I was also wondering about just generational differences uh, in people's approach to climate change and the severity of it. So one thing I was learning about uh so policy change versus, like, personal changes, right? Like, someone eating, like, cow meat a few less times a week because mm-hmm. of, like, the methane and and the climate, like, the climate change causing gases that, like, cows make and the farming industry makes or, like, the fossil fuel industry by, like, driving our car a lot or flying a lot. So it's like, you know, if someone buys offsets or if someone uses less uh, gas or eats less meat or, like, you know, changes to a metal straw, that doesn't make as much of a change as sweeping policy. Totally. My question is why? How do we explain that? So poli- I mean, I believe you. I just am wondering. <laughs> so policy can force corporations 
or like, you know, fossil fuel companies, you know, car manufacturers to act a certain way. You know, people can choose to buy an electric car, but if there were a policy, which I'm not advocating for, but to have all electric cars, that's obviously going to make a much bigger difference, right? If we had a policy where fossil fuel companies had to be accountable for their actions, that would make a huge difference. Is a good example of that, like with how these airplanes, I was just reading this thing about how like airplanes like will do this thing where they're like, for weight, they'll like give way more fuel than they need and then they like burn it and dump it because it's like backloading or something. So it's like they can, and there's like policy where it's like they want to make that illegal so that like they can't like, because it's like causing like, I don't know if you have, we can look that up, but it's, I just was reading an article about it, but it's like, so policy like that where like an airline company wouldn't be able to like use like, because it's also like if they know that like if the prices are going up, they'll like get more like at a time, but then they dump it and like burn it. It's like a thing. Yeah. And so like, that's exactly like what a regulation would address. Right. So it's like, you know, the reason we had the Clean Water Act is because people were just dumping it without any sort of accountability. And unless people stop them, which is what the government is there to do is for oversight, then we're not going to get those, those actions. So, um, Okay, I got that. I got that. Now, with what is the Union of Concerned Scientists? Because that's where you're like a literal multi-hyphenate there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we are a national organization, and we conduct rigorous technical analysis, and we develop and advocate for policies to address global problems like climate change or nuclear war or sustainable energy. So these are the kinds of things that we— do and so and so in, in the Trump administration, we've also been trying to expose kind of the manipulation of science by political operatives or special interests, and so it's it's a really cool organization. Oh shit! Uh, can you? <laughs> I mean, that's I'm trying not to. Okay, so but when we when we were telling when you were telling me about like what geoengineering is at the beginning, you're saying it can be controversial because you know it's talking about like. Is the controversy because, like, some people like, you're playing God, like, changing, like, temperature and stuff. So, like, that's, like, where, like, it's, like, a separation. It's, like, a church thing. Yeah, no, totally. And so um, there there are a few risks that people are worried about. And so one of them is kind of this play God situation because we already have, you know, caused climate change, right? We don't know what the risks are of doing solar geoengineering. You know, another risk that a lot of people worry, are worried about is this thing called moral hazard, right? So if you do this, and so, so the way solar geoengineering works is that you would put these aerosols into the upper atmosphere in this layer called the stratosphere, and those particles reflect sunlight to cool the planet. So you're not actually dealing with emissions. And so a lot of people are worried about, you know, will fossil fuel companies just keep emitting because they can? And so will they and so will we no longer have an incentive to keep using renewables and, you know, reducing our emissions? Because these because one of the okay, oh okay, that makes sense. Okay, wait. So that's something that people are really, really concerned about with this kind of technology. So would another geoengineering thing be like how Trump was talking about like nuking hurricanes? <laughs> I mean, I guess technically that would be a geoengineering approach. <laughs> it is dummies. not a sane one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and oh, you know another thing I was thinking, like the canals in Amsterdam, like is, like is like building like a canal. Like, is that geoengineering or not really? Not really. Geoengineering is more about like interven- intervening in like the climate system. Itself. Okay, okay, yeah. Right. So, <clears throat> with what you study specifically, and like what you kind of work on, is you. It's, aren't you like all about like that carbon removal? You know about like that, like and like the the aerosols and the stratosphere, like that whole thing. Yeah, I have so many more questions yeah. that I want to talk about. It's like so, I kind of am curious about like how you. Well, I'm really curious about it. How did you get to that destination? So like you're minding your own business at undergrad. It's somewhere really smart. 
Uh, Northwestern. <laughs> yeah. So you're minding your own business studying. Uh, 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 environmental engineering. Yeah. yeah, which is major. So you're learning about environmental engineering things. You're like, you're doing math. You're doing science. Like your brain is expanding. You're like acquiring much Allegedly. knowledge. <laughs> no, I, it is. <laughs> and then the next, and then you go to, like, how did you get into this? With the with the the aerosols in the atmosphere and the lowering temperature. Yeah, no. So I learned about that when I was learning about climate science during my master's, and it was so interesting to me. And you know, they were it, at that point. It was like it was like ten years ago, and these topics were not really talked about as much. But I found them to be so interesting because we might need them, but we're not talking about them, and especially for carbon removal, I think is something that we need to talk about even more. And so, and, what are the risks of too much carbon? So, I mean, climate change. Yeah. I mean, massive, massive risk, right? And so with carbon removal, so one of the reasons I got even more interested in it is that, you know, in in a lot of this, like, modeling studies that have gone on and looking at how we can make sure we we stay under certain temperatures, we're starting to find that there's almost no way to stay under, like, 1.5 degrees without using carbon removal. No way. And so we need because to, it's just already been done. Like we already did the we've, day basis. We've already, it's already gone raising too far, far, right? And so we have to, you know, really start talking about you know these different approaches within carbon removal. And so, and I'm not advocating for like any particular approach because different ones have different kinds of risks. Um, there's a lot of different you know conversations we need to have, but we do need to start having you know more R and D um, in the administration, more demonstration projects, um, and just more investment in this space. So what are the ways? Yeah, so there's a pretty broad spectrum. So we have like nature-based stuff like I was talking about, like blue carbon and deforestation. But, but, but right now your team doesn't think that there is like any way to do it like with just like a plant more trees, eat less meat approach. Like we're going to have to do one of these things to get there, you think? I think we're going to have to. And I it's think within 11 years is the is the breaking point. Is that when we got to do it by? So the, the, I think that's that's an interesting point. So I think so what the IPCC report said was basically that well, f- first, most importantly, that we need to get to net zero emissions by 2050. Now, to get there by 2030, we need to be on a robust, aggressive path to carbon re- carbon mitigation. We need like our emissions need to be going down like drastically to make sure we stay under this one and a half degrees of temperature rise, right? So nothing's going to happen in 2030. Like, there's not going to be like some sort of apocalyptic event that happens, but there's going to be way worse worsening climate impacts by then. And the best available science says that, you know, there's there's a rapidly closing window of time. And so, you know, the next 10 years are crucial. And I think so this the kind of, I think the deadline mentality is like not quite accurate. Like nothing's going to happen in 2030. But if it's motivating action, then that's I'm totally fine with it. <laughs> because really, like it's I mean, I think people are like I think that's part of like why it's hard to create that sense of urgency, because it's not like, you know, we could get an. Like some crazy asteroid we haven't seen could hit us tomorrow. You could walk in front of it. It's like, you know, people are like have that whole approach too, you know? And so it's like without that like, you know, smoking gun thing like where people can see it, it's like I wonder like how are they going to really like, you know, get it together? So it's like just paint a picture where we keep doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And let's say it's like 2075. And we just keep on going. Like do you think there's a world where Manhattan is like Venice? 
I mean, there's going to be a lot more flooding. There's going to be way more storms. We're going to have problems with food. We're going to have problems with water. I mean, it's it's just going to be a really dire situation. And there's going to be places that are way more hard hit than we are in the United States. Because is climate change hitting the ocean worse than land? Like, is it affecting our water worse than land or both equally? I mean, it's affecting both, and it's causing ocean acidification, which is really important. So it's it's causing huge changes in our ocean ecosystems, um, and so that which will affect fisheries, which is a huge food source for a lot of the country. It's going to affect you know coastal erosion and sea level rise, and you know we have so many people living on the coast, not just in the United States, but over the world. The majority of the population lives on the coast. What is our emissions like? Like, are we a bigger contributor than like a lot of people to what the issues are? What do you mean? Like, do we have, like, is our carbon emissions, is our carbon footprint, like, worse than other countries? Or? Oh, totally. Uh, we used to be the biggest emitter. Uh, China surpassed us recently. But, you know, cumulatively, in terms of, like, you know, the last few decades, we're definitely still the biggest contributor to climate change. Okay, so now let's talk. I'm so sorry I keep getting away from, like, the things that you do. I just have no so worries. many questions. <laughs> so, yeah, so you're—so, yeah, before I interrupted you and went off track again, you're— Finding out about carbon carbon removal. Yeah, Yeah. so I was talking about, so we have these nature-based solutions, but there's also technological solutions, right? So there's something called direct air capture, which are basically these giant machines that suck carbon out of the atmosphere, and then we either store that carbon or we use it for something. Ooh, what can we use carbon for? So we could use it, we could use it as like a cement building material. Ooh. Uh, We could use it, so it's used also to extract oil, which we don't want necessarily to continue, but that's that's a big use right now. Um, We could use it, you know, to carbonate sodas, you know, there's a lot really? of really, yeah. I mean, it's not a huge, you know, product that that CO two would be good for, but it's it's one of them. Um, but yeah, but building materials, I think, is a huge one that can. Too bad we can't make gas that's not from fossils. So an int- one interesting thing, actually. So there is a company that is is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. They have a pilot plant, and then are, they're using it to make fuel. So the, it's basically like a closed loop system, right? It's still a fossil fuel. It still it has a it's a carbon based fuel, but it's a closed loop. They're not extracting it. They're pulling it out of the atmosphere and then using it as a fuel. So that's better than it's getting. Better, yeah, it's better than pulling it out, and we're not, they're not actually contributing any emissions. And so that's a potential use. I think the best thing is to actually store it underground in, in a geological formation where it can stay for thousands of years, and that, that and that actually is something called a negative emission. Which is Why? where we want to get to, because they're actually pulling it out of the atmosphere and putting it underground, so it no longer exists in the atmosphere anymore. And so, so when people talk about net zero, is there a danger to a to storing carbon in the ground? Like, can it leak in poison water or something? Um, so there are there are some risks and stuff, but it, it wouldn't poison water. Um, and the 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 places that they're stored are pretty secure formations. We do need to research it more, but it's it's something that we've been researching for some time and that we're already using for some and like and on, a, on a very small scale right now. But that you know we we're pretty like aware of the science in that space. But yeah, and so when people talk about net zero by twenty fifty, right? We probably won't be have like completely zero emissions by twenty fifty, right? And for like aviation emissions or industrial emissions, where we can't necessarily zero those out, we need negative emissions to get to zero. And so that when people say net zero, that's usually what they're talking about. So negative emissions would be something where it like actually takes it out and makes it not exist. So really, is the only way to get to a negative emission is to store it underground? Yeah, and or like or something like planting a tree, technically, of like if the tree's still alive before you know it's it's pulled it out of the atmosphere, and so that's technically a negative emission. How much does a tree really pull out of the atmosphere? Not that much, and so that's why you know really large scale afforestation probably isn't a way to you know. Oh, a- 
afforestation is like replanting trees or planting new trees. So reforestation is oh, pla- is replacing afforestation. No, afforestation oh, is oh. a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So reforestation is replacing trees that have been cut down, like in the Amazon. Afforestation is planting new trees, so building new forests. Ugh. So that's so it's a, so like so afforestation is not as good as reforestation, or it's the same but just different. It's it's the same. It's the same. It's just planting more trees, but afforestation is adding to the trees that we already have, versus reforestation is re- like restoring the trees that we've cut down. Okay, we're gonna be right back with more right after the break. Okay, uh, we're right back with Dr. <laughs> Suchi Talati. We're talking about afforestation versus deforestation. So, do you, is there like does like a weeping willow take out more than a palm tree? Do you know about that, or like is it all kind of the same? I don't know about like exact tree species. I'm guessing it's like all pretty much on the same scale. But on, a, on a, the scale that we need for carbon removal, trees are probably not enough. We definitely need them, 100 percent need yeah. them, but they're probably not enough. And so, what the IPCC report said is that by mid-century, we probably need about 10 gigatons a year of carbon removal. Now, to put that in perspective, we, the United States, emits six gigatons a year of carbon dioxide. So it's a crazy, crazy scale. So we need to remove. 10, 10 gigatons a year by probably mid-century. And we emit 6. 6 gigatons a so year right now. So we need to right get now. to negative 16. In the United States, right? So 10 gigatons would be global. But just to put that in perspective of what 10 gigatons means, um, it's it's a huge, huge amount. And so the scale at which we, we would need carbon removal is probably amongst one of the biggest things we've done in human history. So one thing I notice about Republicans is, is that the only thing that motivates them is, like, money or, like, potential to make money. So, you know, because China is becoming, like, a bigger, more powerful economic force, it's like—and doesn't it seem like they're doing a little bit—or, like, the the government of China is doing more in kind of a solar panel? Like, aren't they getting a little bit more curious themselves about, like, you know, like, more sustainable ways of of—, of uh, energy? Yeah, China totally is. Um, they have invested so much in solar and wind. I think they've become one of the biggest producers of, of solar like parts. Um, and so, yeah, China is definitely there. They're also, you know, still producing a lot of coal. Well, I'm not saying, oh, they are. Interest. So a lot of coal mining going on in China. Yeah, and a lot of coal, uh, uh, fossil fuel uh, energy production. Huh. I wonder if that's why Donald Trump and like other Republicans are so like pro, like, pro coal in America because they want to create like competition or something because of like a hideous trade deficit. I'm not saying it's like cute, it's like bad, but like because one thing that I keep thinking about is like if we go to all this trouble to like do the Paris Climate Agreement, like blah blah blah, it's like well, not that we're doing it anymore, but like when we go back, it's like it kind of takes everyone. Oh, 100% takes everyone, and I think in terms of like why Republicans support coal here, honestly, it's because the mining is going on in their own states, and you know the coal production is such a big part of their communities and their money. So and that's what I just, I keep writing down money. So like, is there money in carbon removal? Is there an industry yeah, that so we could create it's, here? It's really interesting. The thing about carbon removal is that it builds some weird coalitions, right? You have people who support coal and coal power plants actually on board with researching this technology. And so it's both that's good. That's because they want to be right, able so to. Right. So it's both good and bad, right? So you have, you have you know, these Republicans on board with this type of technology. You have fossil fuel companies on board with this type of technology because they're the ones that can help, you know, build the technology, right? Because the technology for carbon removal is similar to, like, carbon capture and storage, which we also need, but it comes from fossil fuel technology, right? And so what a lot of people are worried about is that if we are investing heavily in carbon removal, especially, like, direct air capture, 
are we going to become dependent on the fossil fuel infrastructure that we don't want to be dependent on anymore? And so that's that's a big question in this space. So back to what you study again, I swear to God, we're going to land at this time, is you, like, so you're doing your master's program and you start to learn about this, like, wide-scale carbon removal about, like, a decade ago. Mm-hmm. So in how so what is it there's like the aerosol kind there's yeah so, like, so the carbon removal is one kind and so the other kind is called solar geoengineering so there's yes, 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 yes. SGE is what I wrote down yes so there's so there's a few different kinds of solar geoengineering so there's the aerosol kind which I talked about which basically aims to mimic a big volcano so when when there was a big volcano in 1991 called Mount Pinatubo and so when it mm-hmm. erupted it erupted the, uh, the eruption was so large that it sent aerosols into the upper atmosphere into the stratosphere and we noticed that we had almost half a degree of cooling for some time and so we started looking closer at like the modeling and how this works and so basically it would aim to put up aerosols similarly using planes um, and so it would build a layer around you know around the whole you know, globe to reflect sunlight and to cool it in the same way. What were the aerosols from inside the volcano made of? So they were made of sulfur. So those were sulfate aerosols. And so we don't necessarily know if that's the best aerosol to use. Um, that's Like sodium t- lauryl sulfate? Just sulfate. Um, so just... So just the sulfate part? Yeah. So what's sulfate? <laughs> Uh, so it's it's uh, an, an element. So sulfur is an element. And so when it would go into the stratosphere, it would become hydrogen, sulfur, sulfate aerosols, these little particles of sulfur. The only real danger that we're concerned about is that maybe there could be some sort of ozone depletion because of these sulfate aerosols. Uh. Now, we don't know if it would necessarily be enough to cause a problem. We also don't know if there could be a better aerosol to use. And that's what research is about, right? We need way, way, way more research. Is your guess that it would be sulfur because nothing seemed like bad that happened last time when the volcano went off? I would say I have no idea yet. We're like super nascent in this stage. And I oh, think what's a nascent just means like a newborn baby? Very early. Yeah. Super baby. Oh, love. <laughs> love. A, like we're learning so many big words today. So the aerosols, one one was way. one kind. Um, and so another kind is something called marine cloud brightening. So basically we would put up like salt particles in these special clouds that are over the ocean that would make them brighter. So now when something's brighter, it increases its albedo, which is basically its reflectivity. So basically we would be reflecting more sunlight. Um, and so that's that's another way. Um, the so me- we would put salt in water. So we would take like salt and we would make it really small and then like throw it up into the clouds. And so those salt particles would help make the clouds brighter, which is crazy. Uh, why? How? So basically, the salt particles are something called cloud condensation nuclei. So basically, it would increase the condensation and make it brighter. Interest. Yeah. But the the method that has like the most attention, I would say, are the aerosols. Um, and so there's a few different reasons for that. One, because we've seen it work with volcanoes. Two, um, it's that the direct costs for that are actually really low. Um, so the cost to like maintain this like system, you know, could could be potentially pretty cheap. Which is really concerning, right? You know, it could lead to like a lot of geopolitical problems, right? So, say for example, um, India is experiencing a lot of extreme events. The cost of this could be so low that it's something that India could do on their own without asking for permission, without any sort of, you know, system to oversee this. But Russia, for example, might not like that, right? Because they're benefiting from the hotter temperatures because of Arctic melt. We could have a huge geopolitical conflict because of that. And so there's all these geopolitical risks and instabilities, too. And so the thing that scares me most about this, which is the reason my title is what it is, is that there's no governance around this technology. 
We have no governance on an international scale, national scale, state scale. There's no oversight. There's no monitoring. There's no public engagement. It's really scary. So theoretically, like any country could just like try out this throwing up aerosols in planes thing? Basically. I mean, like we don't quite have the technology yet, but it's not a hard engineering problem. And somebody could figure this out pretty quickly and do this on their own. And you know, even like a company could afford to do this on their, on their what own. What if you used it like for worse stuff, like to not fight climate change, but like couldn't like it be used like in like scary ways? It could be, uh, you know. So how do we protect our baby cells? Like, well, how do we get how do we get governance on a world scale for this? We got to have more conversations. It's something that people aren't really willing to talk about. And and the thing, and so there's there are some groups who are really opposed to this technology, and there are some groups that you know want to have a lot more research on this technology, and you know. What I think is that you need governance no matter what. If you want to ban this technology or if you want to promote the technology, we have to have governance. And I think that's the most important part of this. Because you not only study the science, but you also have studied policy. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as the, I mean, for, I mean, and you also worked at the White House under the Obama administration, which like, I cannot believe we're just like getting to now. I'm so sorry, but like, it's just like, I had so many questions. So what was your time like there working with an administration? Did you, in your opinion, did you feel like it was really well funded and really well sought after at the time or really well like tended to at the time? And now like, what has your experience been? Yeah. um, So when I was there, I was at the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and it was this really fantastic place because science was so important to the Obama administration. It was this really thriving atmosphere where they were bringing in all these scientists and these really incredible people to work on on climate change, on, you know, national security and on all these really important scientific topics. Um, Now, uh, you know, OSTP still exists, but it's, it's a much smaller kind of thing than it was before. You know, they don't have the power that they had under the Obama administration. It's not, science is not something that's really funded in this administration. Um, and so it's, it's really disheartening to see, actually. Um, and I really hope that in the next administration in, in 2020, knock on wood, we're going to see this robust growth again and even better than it was in the Obama administration. I mean, to me, it seems like, you know, the Trump administration and, and other, you know, kind of xenophobic, racist, isolationist, uh, like, you know, like uh, just nationalist more than isolationist, just nationalist uh, uh, governments. They they have this feeling of like wanting it to go back to the way that it was or, you know, really being in this idea that like things were so nice, you know, mm-hmm. and like and, and really fighting this like idea of, um, you know, just being aware of like what's going on. And so what are the real world Implicate. I mean, obviously climate change, but like because we aren't doing any, you've been on the front lines of this on an administration that was being on the forefront of this. And now you have been on the front lines of this in an administration that is completely removed ourselves from the conver- com- conversation and really taken us back like 50 years in their mm-hmm. approach to climate change. So it's like, what are we really at risk of other like spell out some of the risks that we're at from a government from a governance and governmental regulation standpoint, like other countries could do X while we're doing nothing. Yeah. um, Other countries could innovate. Right. You know, the United States prides itself on being number one in science and technology. Well, that might not hold true. You know, China is accelerating their research and technology. India, you know, Europe. I mean, people are going to move past us if we don't start investing and, you know, 
picking people up, right? We need more people to, you know, start dedicating their lives to science. We need to build up STEM, which is science, technology, education, and math, right? We need we need more women. We need more women of color. We need, you know, we have to build up our coalitions to be competitive. And I think a lot of people forget that, right? You know, they think we're number one right now. Like, we don't need to fund science anymore. The only way we stay number one is by continuing to fund science and scientists and engineers and lifting up new people and new like people that don't necessarily have access to this space to start coming in with new ideas that we never would have thought of before. So do you feel more of a real world threat to daily life under a Trump administration because of their neglect for science funding and science research? I do. Uh, I think, you know, you you. It's not something that you necessarily will capture in your in your day to day, but you're going to see like programs start starting to just get defunded and shut down. You know, certain researchers might not get funded. Some people might not get grants. Um, you know, certain offices like in NOAA and NASA, like their climate offices, might not be able to fund as many students anymore. So the students don't end up doing climate and they do something else. And we might not feel that right now, but we will feel that in 10 to 15 years. But are you already feeling that? In some respects now, I mean, even like the office that you were just talking about, like under the Obama administration, it's like not the same. It's not the same. Yeah. Like we don't have the same kind of like momentum and work towards like climate adaptation or even mitigation. So climate adaptation is? So climate adaptation is preparing ourselves for the impacts of climate change. Um, And so that's things like building seawalls or even like as drastic as evacuating a city because it's no longer inhabitable due to climate change. It's like a whole range of different different things. And that's part of what the or the Union of Concerned Scientists studies. Like there's like a faction of concerned scientists that are studying that. Yeah. No, adaptation and resilience is like a huge component of climate. You know, we have to adapt. Everyone's going to be affected by climate change. So we all have to prepare. And it's like a New Orleans or a Houston would like already be in the thick of this. Right. Well, they should be anyway. Um, you know, whether they have the funding and the policy infrastructure and interest to be funding climate adaptation is something I'm not sure about. Um, there are definitely cities who are who have climate adaptation plans, New York being one of them, um, but there aren't enough. And because different communities are going to be affected in different ways, this has to be a local-based, you know, planning. Uh, so when you think about being a voter, like, it wouldn't, I mean, because we are coming up to an election, it's like, how do you research a, a candidate, especially local candidates, on uh, not only, like, what local candidates' policies are, but, like, how do you research or, like, know about, like, votes that are going on in Congress that would, you know, roll back regulations? Like, do you keep your eyes on that stuff? And, like, if so, how do you find it? Yeah, I definitely keep my eyes on it. And it's 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 paying attention to even, like, outlets that are more science-oriented, um, that focus on, you know, particular policies. Um, it's just kind of keeping, that like, tabs on it. Um, you know, even and when really big things happen, obviously the bigger outlets will cover it. But there are, you know, some, like, science-oriented magazines and, you know, websites. Do you have any faves? Um, oh, my God, I'm totally playing. No, it's okay. <laughs> we'll, no, we'll include it. On, we'll include it later because I just totally put you on the spot. So, I mean— I feel like we really, Dr. Suji Talati. I just thank you so much for your work and your just your work, your expertise, your time. Um, I really love that you mentioned. You know, we need more women of color in science. Is there any like words of wisdom or encouragement that you would give to any like women of color who are listening to this right now who want to get into science, women who want to get into science, or like men who are supporting women who want to get into science? Like, what? how could people have been more supportive to you, like, uh, in at work, in, in talking about science? Like, what's your word to the wise? 
I feel like I wish I had more mentors. And so my advice to aspiring young women would be to reach out to women that you want to be like. You know, women are super open to talking. At least all my, everyone that I know in this field loves talking to young women. And so reach out um, and you will get a response. Ah, oh, I love that. Dr. Tilati, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you. This was so fantastic. You're amazing. Thank you so much. Ah. <laughs> uh. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Dr. Suchi Talati. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. Getting Curious is produced by me, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. <laughs>